Chapter 6 About an hour later, Mrs. Valerie Pickwell twanged open her back screen door, stood on the step, and whistled. As whistles go, Mrs. Pickwell's is one of the all-time greats. It reeled in every Pickwell kid for dinner every night. Never was a Pickwell kid ever late for dinner. It's a record that will probably stand forever. The whistle wasn't loud, wasn't screechy. It was a simple two-note job, one high note, one low. To an outsider, it wouldn't sound all that special. But to the ears of a Pickwell kid, it was magic. Somehow, it had the ability to slip through the slush of five o'clock noises to reach its targets. So, from the dump, from the creek, from the tracks, from Red Hill, in ran the Pickwell kids for dinner, all ten of them. Add to that the parents, Baby Dee Dee, Grandmother and Grandfather Pickwell, Great-Grandfather Pickwell, and a down-and-out taxi driver whom Mr. Pickwell was helping out. The Pickwells were always helping out somebody. All that, and you had what Mrs. Pickwell called her small nation. Only a ping-pong table was big enough to seat them all, and that's what they ate around. Dinner was spaghetti. In fact, every third-night dinner was spaghetti. When dinner was over, and they were all bringing their dirty dishes to the kitchen, Dominic Pinkwell said to Duke Pinkwell, "'Who's that kid?' "'What kid?' said Duke. "'The kid next to you at the table.' "'I don't know. I thought Donald knew him.' "'I don't know him,' said Donald. "'I thought Dion knew him.' "'Never saw him,' said Dion. "'I figured he was Deirdre's new boyfriend.' Deirdre kicked Dion in the shins. Duke checked back in the dining room. He's gone. The Pickwell kids dashed out the back door to the top of Rayco Hill. They scanned the railroad tracks. There he was, passing Red Hill, a book in his hand. He was running, passing the spear field now, and the Pickwell kids had to blink and squint and shade their eyes to make sure they were seeing right. Because the kid wasn't running the cinders alongside the tracks or the wooden ties. No, he was running, running, where the Pickwells themselves, where every other kid had only ever walked, on the steel rail itself. Chapter 7 When Geoffrey McGee was next spotted, it was at the Little League field in the park. A Little League game had just ended. The Red Sox had won, but the big story was John McNabb, who struck out 16 batters to set a new Two Mills LL record. McNabb was a giant. He stood five feet eight and was said to weigh over 170 pounds. He had to bring his birth certificate in to the league director to prove he was only 12. And still, most people didn't believe it. The point is, the rest of the league was no match for McNabb. It wouldn't have been so bad if he'd been a right fielder, but he was a pitcher. And there was only one pitch he ever threw, a fastball. Most of the batters never saw it. They just heard it whizzing past their noses. You could see their knees shaking from the stands. One poor kid stood there long enough to hear strike one go past, then threw up all over home plate. It was still pretty light out because when there are a lot of strikeouts, a game goes fast, and McNabb was still on the mound, even though the official game was over. 
He figured he'd made baseball history, and he wanted to stretch it out as long as he could. There were still about ten players around, Red Soxers and Green Soxers, and McNabb was making them march up to the plate and take their swings. There was no catcher. The ball just zoomed to the backstop. When a kid struck out, he went back to the end of the line. McNabb was loving it. After each whiff, he laughed and bellowed the strikeout total. Twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight. He was like a shark. He had the bloodlust. The victims were hunched and trembling, walking the gangplank. Thirty-four, thirty-five. And then somebody new stepped up to the plate. Just a punky, runty little kid, no red socks or green socks uniform, kind of scraggly, with a book which he laid down on home plate. He scratched out a footing in the batter's box, cocked the bat on his shoulder, and stared at McNabb. McNabb croaked from the mound. Get out of there, you runt. This is a little league record. You ain't in little league. The kid walked away. Was he chickening out? No. He was lifting a red cap from the next batter in line. He put it on. He was back in the box. McNabb almost fell off the mound. He was laughing so hard. Okay, runt, number 36 coming up. McNabb fired. The kid swung. The batters in line automatically turned their eyes to the backstop where the ball should be. But it wasn't there. It was in the air riding on a beeline right out to McNabb's head, the same line it came in on, only faster. McNabb froze, then flinched just in time. The ball missed his head, but nipped the bill of his cap and sent it spinning like a flying saucer out to the shortstop. The ball landed in the second-base dust and rolled all the way to the fence in center field. Dead silence. Nobody moved. McNabb was gaping at the kid who was still standing there all calm and cool, waiting for the next pitch. Finally, a sort of grin slithered across McNabb's lips. He roared, Get my hat. Get the ball. Ten kids scrambled onto the field, bringing him the hat and ball. McNabb had it figured now. He was so busy laughing at the runt, he lobbed him a lollipop, and the runt got lucky and pulled it. This time, McNabb wasn't laughing. He fingered the ball, tips digging into the red stitching. He wound. He fired. He thought, man, that sucker's going so fast, even I can hardly see it. And then he was looking up, turning, following the flight of the ball, which finally came down to earth in deep left center field and bounced once to the fence. More silence, except from someone who yelled, yep then caught himself. Ball, bellowed McNabb. He was handed the ball. He slammed his hat to the ground. His nostrils flared. He was breathing like a picadored bull. He windmilled, reared, lunged, fired. This time the ball cleared the fence on the fly. No more holding back. The other kids cheered. Somebody ran for the ball. They were anxious now for more. Three more pitches. Three more home runs. Pandemonium on the sidelines. It was raining red and green hats. McNabb couldn't stand it. The next time he threw, it was right at the kid's head. The kid ducked. 
McNabb called, strike one. Next pitch headed for the kid's belt. The kid bent his stomach around the ball. Steve Reich, two. Strike three took dead aim at the kid's knees. And here was the kid, swooping back and at the same time swatting at the ball like a golfer teeing off. It was the craziest baseball swing you ever saw. But there was the ball smoking out to center field. Hold it, runt, snarled McNabb. I can't pitch right when I got a whiz. The kids on the sidelines made way as McNabb stomped off the field, past the dugout and into the woods between the field and the creek. They waited a pretty long time, but they figured, well, McNabb's whiz probably would last longer than a regular kid's, might even make the creek rise. At last McNabb was back on the mound, fingering the ball in his glove, a demon's gleam in his eye. He wound up, fired, the ball headed for the plate, and... What's this? A leg ball? It's got legs. Long legs, pinwheeling toward the plate. It wasn't a ball at all. It was a frog. And McNabb was on the mound, cackling away. And the kid at the plate was bug-eyed. He'd never, nobody'd ever, tried to hit a fast frog before. So what did the kid do? He bunted it. He bunted the frog, laid down a perfect bunt in front of the plate, third base side, and he took off for first. He was halfway to second before McNabb jolted himself into action. The kid was trying for an inside-the-park home-run bunt, the rarest feat in baseball, something that had hardly ever been done with a ball and never with a frog. And to be the pitcher who let such a thing happen? Well, McNabb could already feel his strikeout record fading to a mere grain in the sand lot of history. So he lumbered off the mound after the frog, which was now hopping down the third base line. As a matter of fact, it was so close to the line that McNabb had a brilliant idea. Just heard the frog across the line, and it would be a foul ball, or frog which is what he tried to do with his foot. But the frog, instead of taking a left turn at the shoe, jumped over it and hopped on toward third base. He was heading for the green fields of left, and the runt kid, sounding like two runners with his flap soles slapping the bottoms of his feet, was chucking dust for third. Only one hope now. McNabb had to grab the frog and tag the runner out but now the frog shot through his legs over to the mound and now toward shortstop and now toward second. And McNabb was lurching and lunging, throwing his hat at the frog, throwing his glove, and everybody was screaming, and the kid was rounding third and digging for home. And, unbefroggable, the ball was headed back home too. The ball, the batter, the pitcher, all racing for home plate. And it was the batter the new kid out of nowhere, who crossed the plate first, at the same time scooping up his book, twirling his borrowed red cap back to the cheering others, and jogging on past the empty stands and up the hill to the boulevard, McNabb gasping, croaking after him. Don't stop till you're out of town, runt. Don't let me ever catch you. And that's how Jeffrey McGee knocked the world's first frog ball for a four-bagger. Chapter 8
and how he came to be called Maniac. The town was buzzing. The schools were buzzing. Hallways, lunchrooms, streets, playgrounds, West End, East End. Buzzing about the new kid in town. The stranger kid, scraggly, carrying a book. Flap-soled sneakers. The kid who intercepted Brian Dennehy's pass to hands down and punted it back longer than Dennehy himself ever threw it. The kid who rescued Arnold Jones from Finsterwald's backyard. The kid who tattooed giant John McNabb's fastball for a half-dozen home runs, then circled the sacks on a bunted frog. Nobody knows who said it first, but somebody must have. Kid's got to be a maniac. And somebody else must have said, Yeah, regular maniac. And somebody else, Yeah. And that was it. Nobody, except Amanda Beale, had any other name for him. So pretty soon, when they wanted to talk about the new kid, that's what they called him. Maniac. The legend had a name. But not an address, at least not an official one, with numbers. What he did have was the deer shed at the Elmwood Park Zoo, which is where he slept his first few nights in town. What the deer ate, especially the carrots, apples, and day-old hamburger buns, he ate. He started reading Amanda Beale's book his second day in town and finished it that afternoon. Ordinarily, he would have returned it immediately, but he was so fascinated by the story of the children's crusade that he kept it and read it the next day and the next. When he wasn't reading, he was wandering. When most people wander, they walk. Maniac McGee ran around town, around the nearby townships, always carrying the book, keeping it in perfect condition. This is what he was doing when his life, as it often seemed to do, took an unexpected turn.